And what we're looking at today is Jesus. Now, you might say we do that every week, and I hope that we do. We are a church that Jesus is uh, at the centre of all that we we do and uh, follow. But I wanted us to take really time this morning to look at a passage that's about Jesus' death, but it's also about who's there. And it's about the fact that on one side, we have a criminal who says, it's all right, I'll take this on my own, I'll die on my own, I've lived on my own, I don't need a saviour. And on the other side, we have a guy right in his last breath who says, I need a saviour. And beautifully there, in the Bible, we have juxtaposed, put in opposite polarised positions, what it means to say you are saviour and what it means to live and die on our own. So here it is. We're going to join the story in verse 32 of Luke 23. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others, let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, well, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly. We're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining. We'll leave it there. It's an amazing passage. Um, I want us to think about... Um, As we look at Christian, as we look at this series of really where we're examining, is this real? Because that's effectively what we're doing. We're stripping everything back and saying, who are we living for and is it real? And I want you to imagine that suddenly in the news on social media or on on Twitter or on uh, whatever your, your platform is, it comes across that there is this guy walking around here in Birmingham maybe saying, I am God. What would our reaction be? they said, I'm the son of God. Well, I mean, if I heard that, I'd be very sceptical. I don't know about anyone else. I'd think, oh no, is this somebody who's a bit mad? You know, let's keep this at a distance. Or I would think, well, let's find out. Let's find out if it stands up that he is God. And my guess is these are the things we'd want to know. What makes him look like God? You know, what is it about his life that is so distinctive, that stands out and is beautiful? I think we'd want to know, does he have real power to actually change lives, as we've heard today? Do we even need to know him and have relationship with him? Is this a passing craze if people are starting to listen to him? Is it a madness that will pass away? Will his claims ever prove true? Because this is how, to my mind, we know that Jesus was and is still God. His claims have proved true. 
He is the real deal. He did heal people. He did bring goodness, beauty, compassion, healing, food, forgiveness, wholeness. He saw the people who thought they were invisible and made them come to the table and be glorified, be, be accepted, be welcomed. He added to lives. One of Jesus' names, as declared earlier in Luke 7, is friend of sinners. What a beautiful name, because as we established two weeks ago, we are all sinners. Broken relationship with God that needed to be healed uh, by Jesus and his love. And populist theory has at times said, well, really, did Jesus live or is it something Christians have made up? You know, is, is this real? And I think it's interesting. There's one quote I read that says, I think it is interesting that the only book that even talks about Jesus is the Bible. I'm not sure we can even prove that he existed. And that is false. The Bible is not the only document that tells us that Jesus lived. In fact, there are many, many historical documents written at the time of Jesus and beyond that say he lived. And I'm just going to share with you 10 little points. And I'm not a researcher. Those of you who know me well, this is not my strength. It slightly does my head in. But I think it's really important because actually we need to be convinced that Jesus actually lived first and foremost. So these are the ones I've read. Firstly, there was a guy called Jesus who lived in that time, who was known to be wise and virtuous. And that was recorded by a non-Christian called Josephus. He also confirmed that Jesus had a brother named James. He also confirmed that he performed miracles. And this was also confirmed by Celsus, who was an opponent of Christianity, yet said this guy actually does miracles. Fourthly, he was crucified. That is documented under the reign of Pontius Pilate. And that's uh, by Tacitus, a historian. And this number five really blows me away. So all of them should excite me, but this one particularly really resonates with me, that somebody called Talus, who was alive at the same time as Jesus, says that the whole world was pressed into a most fearful darkness when he died, and that the rocks were rent by an earthquake, and many places in Judea and other districts were thrown down. In other words, there was darkness over the whole land for three hours. And what is amazing is that is a symbol in the Old Testament of God's punishment. So Jesus entering into the darkness and then coming out again. Amazing. We'll look, we'll look a little bit at that later on. But I, I find that incredible. The sixth one, he had many Jewish and Gentile disciples. He brought them together. Seventhly, he lived during the time of Tiberius Caesar. Eighthly, his disciples believed that he rose from the dead. Ninthly, his disciples believed that he was God and met regularly to worship him. And then finally, his disciples were willing to suffer and even die for their beliefs. And this was recorded by the guy who was the secretary to the Roman Empire. So he saw it. He saw this happen. He saw them expelled from Rome. So he's documenting the fact that these guys are so convinced that Jesus is God that they're willing to die for him. So those are 10 facts. Now, you might say, oh, yeah, well, there's a spin on that, Judy. But they were written by people who were either non-Christian or anti-Christian. So that's kind of them saying, okay, he did live and he was real. Uh, and what uh, Elsa Charles says about this, she says, for non-Christian and even anti-Christian resources, we can be sure that Jesus in fact existed, was believed to be resurrected from the dead, and that his many followers were willing to die for that belief. 
And so what I want to just sort of say to us today and reflect on is this is the most important question that you will ever answer in your life, in my opinion, humbly. Is Jesus the saviour? Because we have these two men, these two criminals who both acknowledge that they deserve death and punishment and darkness. One who says, I've got this, I'll do it on my own, thank you very much, I don't need a saviour. And one who says, I need you. And that's the question that at points in our lives we will always need to come back to, whether we've been a Christian for a long time or whether you're looking at Jesus for yourself for the first time. And I want to be honest with you that I began my life as a mocker of Jesus and as a mocker of Christians. Some of you know my testimony. I even went on a beach mission at the time because I thought I'd get loads of funny stories about how wet and weird the Christians were. And I was going to report back to my boyfriend at the time all of the weirdness. And instead, I reported back, I've only gone and become one of them, <laughs> which he didn't like very much. <laughs> and there ended that relationship. Um, but that, to me, is fascinating because it says, look, there are mockers, and we've got that in us. We've all got that. Well, are you the real deal, Jesus? And he is, and we can confirm that. And S.D. Gordon says of Jesus that actually as we look at him, we see the very nature of God himself, whether we mock that or we accept it. He says Jesus was God spelling himself out in a language that humanity could understand in a language of love, in a language of inclusion. And Blair Pascal says, not only do we not fully know God except through Jesus, but we do not know ourselves except through Christ. And I think in a world that's a bit obsessed with self-help and self-motivation, all of those things are really good, but we're very introspective as a nation. And suddenly we get someone who stands up and says, actually, if you really want to know who you are, if you really want to know whose you are, look to Jesus. But actually, he has a plan, as we've heard today. He has a purpose. He has a power to redeem all of our lives. And Paul says of Jesus, and he had this amazing encounter with him, he says this, he is the image of the invisible God. In other words, he's God made visible for us. The firstborn over all creation. For by him were all things created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Our lives hold together, our world holds together, and without him we are lost. So, briefly, the three things that this passage tells us. One is Jesus makes a very bold claim. Two is he gives us all a choice. And thirdly, he gives a promise. And we're going to look at those three things. Firstly, the claim is from the cross, and I find this amazing, that from the cross, what does he cry out? In this account from Luke, he cries out, Father, forgive them. So he looks at the people. Imagine that's you, all mocking and ready to kill me. And I look to you and I say, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. You're about to kill me. And yet still, that is what I say. That was an audacious claim because they knew, his hearers knew that the only person who could forgive sins was God. So here it is, Jesus saying, I was and am God. I'm still God. Even though you're killing me, I choose forgiveness. And that's what marks our faith out over any other faith, that we live lives that are forgiven daily. And I'm reliant on that as a sinner, as we all are, saved by grace, new every morning, God's grace and his mercy for us. 
So he claims that he can forgive sins. And everyone is so horrified. They put a sign up saying he's the king of the Jews, which is ironic, sarcastic. They mock him. They give him wine vinegar. They give him their very worst. And he gives his very best in juxtaposition. Amazing. And I don't know if you've come across this. I think some of the the young people have looked at this in small groups. I find this one of the most helpful things as we look at Jesus. Because C.S. Lewis introduced this thing called the Jesus Trilemma, which says either Jesus was mad, off his head, he was so bad and evil that he's been deceiving people for over 2,000 years, or he was God and he was who he claimed to be. And that's our choice. That we either say, as if he was wandering around today, we either say, well, this is a madman, let's keep him at bay. We either say, this is a really, really evil person who's deceiving everyone and they're giving their lives to him, or he is God. And let's just listen, and I'll read this. It's not on the screen, but I'd just like to read what Lewis says, because I find it helpful, because some of your friends might say to you at times, oh, I believe in Jesus, I believe he was a good guy. You know, I've had that from some of my friends. He was a good teacher, did a lot of good, but that was it. That's where it ends. But listen to what Lewis says. He says, I'm trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I do not accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we cannot say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg. I've no idea why he chose a poached egg, but that is what he said. Or else he would be the very devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him, you can kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronising nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us, and neither did he intend to. And they're bold words, aren't they? But I love them because I think that really helps us with this claim. Jesus claims to be the saviour and we either say he's speaking truth and we follow him or like the other thief, we say, I've got this, I'll do life without you. And the choice of the two thieves is something that really throughout the New Testament, we're given these opposites. We're given the opposite between shame and mercy We're given the opposite between punishment and forgiveness. And we're given the juxtaposed death and life. And the darkness, to return a bit to the darkness that happens over the land, imagine what it must have been like to be there thinking, was this guy really God or not? And suddenly, as he dies, the whole world goes black, goes dark. That, to me, would really have absolutely blown me away. And not only that, but they knew that it was a prophecy that it would happen, that actually, as he was killed, there was an earthquake which was prophesied in the Old Testament, that the earth would shake, and it did. 
It's amazing. And you think there must have been ones that just laid down their sword and just thought, we have got this so wrong. We've killed the one we were waiting for. We've killed the very one who came to show us love. And darkness, if you're an explorer, I don't know how many of you are, are an explorer. It's quite hard in Kings Heath and Mosley. I don't know. But um, there are some explorers that say, and Shackleton was one of them, he said the most terrifying thing if you're out in the world exploring is total darkness. He said, we can almost cope with anything else, but we cannot cope with, with total darkness. Why? Because it completely disorientates us. We can't see ourselves. We can't see others. And that's what spiritual darkness is like, biblically. It disorientates us, and we get consumed, and we think that we're the center of our own lives. But actually, what the light is, what Jesus is, is the light that came into the world that dispelled that darkness so that three hours later, the lights come on again, symbolic of the three days when Jesus comes back from the dead, that he is the light of the world. And I think that's fascinating because there is spiritual darkness and there is physical darkness and they're very joined. And I would say nature, do you remember when the queen died and there was the double rainbow, not just at Balmoral, but at Windsor? And I, I found that, and I know a lot of commentators and journalists said, that's really strange because it just seemed so strategic that creation was saying, well done, good and faithful servant, because a rainbow is faithful one. That's what it means. And, and that lovely reference from Karen, rainbow baby, God faithful to his promises, even when we're in darkness. So I believe that there are supernatural things that happen around us, like the earthquake, like the darkness, that speak of the fact that God is in control of our lives, that he is in control of creations. So that's a little bit of a tangent, but I just got very excited by the, <laughs> by the darkness. That sounds wrong. Um, by the light. Um, and then finally, the promise that he gives. Because he promises in this moment to be saviour, and Lord, and King. He promises the whole thing, that the very thing they're mocking him for, saying he's the King, he actually declares from the cross, he is the King. Well, how does he do that? He does that by talking to the repentant thief, and he says, today you will be with me in paradise. And the word paradise, we perhaps know it now as eternity or heaven, but to the people around that cross, it would have meant the king's garden. That's what paradise was. And the king's garden was so beautiful, but nobody really knew because they never got to see it. They just heard about it. But every now and then, the king would invite someone into paradise to walk with him. So when Jesus says to this thief that has done a lot of wrong. He says, come and enter in. It's the king saying to him, come into the garden and walk with me. It's an incredible thing. Again, an audacious thing for him to say. And that's what he says to you and I. He says, I am the king of this world and the next. He's there dying for us. And yet still he's saying, you will get to be with me in paradise, in eternity. And I love the fact that creation begins with a garden and we see that actually when it's restored, there is a garden again that we are invited into. 
I'm going to just read from Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly, or Lowly and Lofty, as I call it. It's not. It's a really good book. Um, but there's just a lovely way that he puts this into words way better than I ever could. And, and I read it, and I just thought, this is amazing. So he says this, God did not meet us halfway. He refused to hold back, cautious, assessing our worth, because that is not his heart. He and his son took the initiative in terms of grace and grace alone, in defiance of what we deserved. When we, despite our smiles and civility, were running from God as fast as we could, when we were building our own kingdoms and loving our own glory, when we were lapping up passing pleasures of this world, repulsed by the beauty of God, shutting our ears at his calls to come home, it was then, then in the hollowed-out horror of the revolting existence that the Prince of Heaven bade his adoring angels farewell. It was then that he put himself into the murderous hands of the very rebels in a divine strategy planned from all eternity to, to rinse muddy sinners clean and to hug them into his own heart. To rinse muddy sinners clean and to hug them into his own heart. And that's his offer for us that need a saviour to rinse us clean. And he goes on to say, despite their squirmy attempts to get free and scrub themselves clean on their own. So again, you've got that juxtaposition. We either think that we can just be really good. And I know because I've tried the, the be good approach uh, growing up. I tried to be good and knew that actually I needed a saviour. I needed a saviour and I still do today. I'm going to finish before I pray for us with a story that Danielle Strickland, a brilliant, brilliant uh, speaker and writer, uh, shared a while ago. And I think I've mentioned it before, but I felt God really say uh, this morning, actually, that I should share it. Um, and it was of two people who met on the streets of New York. Uh, they were both homeless at the time. They fell in love and they decided to get married. And they got some money together for their wedding banquet, but rather than going to some marquee somewhere beautiful, they decided that they would put on a meal for the people of New York who lived on the streets. So they put out trestle tables and they, they bought this wedding banquet and they said, come, and we want to have this banquet for people like us. And, and they wanted people to know Jesus. And so they had this, this amazing banquet and a lot of people on the streets came and, and ate. But they noticed that there was this one, like a wheelie bin or a dumpster, as you say, in New York, that kept popping up and a guy's face kept looking out and then it went down again. This happened several times. And they realized that there was a guy in there that was looking at them but wasn't coming out. So the bride went over kind of knocked on the thing and he popped up and he said, you know, it looks great, but it's not for me. She said, no, 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 you are invited. The whole point of this wedding banquet is that you would come and join us. So he climbs out of the wheelie bin, probably smelling of whatever, looking, looking really bad, and he's welcomed into that wedding feast. And I felt as I was praying for us this morning that that, to me, is just a beautiful demonstration of what it is to follow Jesus, that he does offer us the very best in this world and the next. And that it may be that you're a bit like that person who's been popping up and having a look and going down again. And I shared that for YouTube as well, because I just felt that it may well be people who, who keep looking, but keep God at a distance, who don't feel worthy, who feel shame instead of mercy, who've, who've chosen darkness over light. 
And this guy is welcomed in. And what's interesting is it's the bride that approaches him. And we are the bride. We are his church. That's one of our names. And that's our calling to say, look, we're sinners saved by grace, like Philip, like me, whoever. Let's go out and find those people who are hiding, who are down in the, in the dumpster, to come out and say, all are welcome. And actually, Jesus loves sinners. He's friend for sinners. And we have a saviour who loves us and who welcomes us back once or time and time again.